Provinces across this country have announced plans to reopen their economies, loosening the restrictions put in place to safeguard public health. For those of us who have been staying home to prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus, it's a welcome announcement. But experts warn that these reopening plans could hasten a second and possibly worse wave of COVID-19. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is why. Hey Dave, I heard you got to go out for a round of golf in Calgary the other week. How was it? It was awesome, man. It really did feel great to be outside doing something other than just walking around or reading a book on my deck. But here in Alberta, we weren't the first one to swing the sticks. Golfers in BC were able to get out and play while keeping social distance. I was glad it was our turn, though, after Alberta's provincial government announced that golf courses could open on May 4th with some restrictions. Yeah, and provinces around the country have announced their staged reopening plans. Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Quebec, PEI, Manitoba, BC, and Ontario. So the question begs to be asked, Dave, what type of business are you most looking forward to visiting when it can reopen? Ask me a week ago, and my answer would have been golf courses until they opened. However, my wife and I are both pretty excited for retail shops because I know she's excited to get back to work. Did you see that story on globalnews.ca about the possibility of a second wave of COVID-19 as businesses reopen? I did, and that brings us to our first guest to the show. Allison Bench is an online journalist for globalnews.ca, and she joins us now. How are you, Allison? I'm good. Allison, what led you to ask the question why or whether a second wave could happen? I think that especially being an online journalist, um, we do look at a lot of the kind of viewer feedback we get on social media and, you know, the province announced uh, that it was launching its um, kind of relaunch uh, stages and the province said that the first stage is going to be launching on um, May 14th if everything goes as planned. But we were seeing a lot of uh, Facebook comments and uh, just general feedback from viewers or readers, I should say, uh, that you know, oh, we're, we can go out, uh, the province has got this. And so it just, like seeing the numbers every day, uh, they haven't actually gone down to where they were before these restrictions were put into place. And so uh, we were just curious, kind of what, what do experts think, uh, you know, people who have studied viruses for their whole careers, uh, what do they think about this, this relaunch plan? Um, and kind of as the article shows, there was just across the board agreement that this is likely going to cause a rise in cases. So, Allison, who all did you speak with about this piece? So, I spoke to Dr. Michael Houghton, um, who works uh, in, as a biologist in Edmonton. Um, and then I also, we talked to Dr. Craig Jenny, who is um, an expert in infectious diseases at the University of Calgary. Um, and then the third person I uh, talked to is actually from Manitoba. She's an epidemiologist um, who runs a research um, company in Winnipeg uh, that kind of specializes in the historical study of viruses uh, called EPI Research. Uh, so that was Cynthia Carr. So, um, and then there was uh, Kirsten Feist, uh, who is a, uh, she works at the UFC, um, also an epidemiologist uh, who specializes in kind of the medical side of things. So I did kind of talk to kind of a, a very kind of 
all specialists in the study of viruses, but all um, who have kind of very different backgrounds. Uh, and it was just very interesting to me that they all kind of came to the same conclusion, that they believed um, it was possibly too early and that people need to social distance throughout this opening. Um, otherwise, it's just going to set us back. Did they speak to the severity of this possible second wave? All of them kind of were in agreement that the big issue with COVID-19 is it's a new virus. It hasn't really been studied. And so for them to predict what it's going to look like is pretty, um, not impossible, but most of them could just say, you know, this is what we think. But, but one thing that kind of kept coming back is the fact that this virus can be spread asymptomatically. And so I think that is, um, it was brought up by um, every expert, essentially, that, you know, you could feel fine, but then you're going out, interacting with a person who's vulnerable, and then that person um, could become extremely ill. You mentioned the historical study of viruses. What are some of the examples from history that you discussed with the experts? One thing that I've seen come up um, in, in numerous other articles that other reporters have written through this is kind of comparing this pandemic to another major pandemic that um, we've had is the Spanish flu um, in 1918. But, um, and that, that flu did come in multiple waves. So it started in the spring of 1918. Uh, which kind of has a parallel to this. Uh, we just had our first wave kind of throughout the spring. And then that virus um, ended up coming back uh, later that same year. And then again in 1919 and 1920. Um, but the, there, there is, like, again, we went back to this discussion that COVID-19, we just don't understand it as a virus. Like, you can look back at the 1918 pandemic and say, you know, okay, and then it mutated and this is what happened. Um, but, you know, for example, Feist, she kind of told me we just have very limited information on the virus. If you think back to, you know, the example that a lot of people are referring to, which was the pandemic uh, of 1918 and the subsequent years, there were probably at least three waves of, of that disease. Um, Unfortunately, it's really challenging to predict how and when that will happen because, uh, especially for COVID-19, um, we just have really limited information on both the transmission and, and the transmissibility of, of the virus. And, and so I think that's probably what makes this, you know, the prediction of that most challenging. It's impossible to predict if this COVID um, pandemic is going to be similar to that one. Um, one thing, though, that I, I kind of felt was um, at least a positive um, comparison was that it was actually um, Cynthia Carr from Winnipeg, uh, the researcher uh, that I spoke to from Winnipeg, who she said that the one positive difference that that you can definitely say it is happening right now is that health officials now are are being open with communicating with people with the virus. Um, you know, we were told to stay home. I feel like Canada-wide, really, it seemed that many um, governments were shutting down uh, out of caution. And in 1918, that wasn't what happened. And, and, and Cynthia Carr kind of said that uh, the, the big problem in the 1918 pandemic was there was a war going on. And so a lot of countries were more focused on the war as opposed to 
focused on um, kind of suppressing the virus. And so right now we see most governments uh, focusing on suppressing um, the spread of the virus. But again, just going back to that main point that uh, all these experts uh, really wanted to get across was, yes, we can um, open things back up, but people need to follow the social distancing rules. The risk of returning to lockdown remains very real if countries do not manage the transition extremely carefully and in a phased approach. What about the role of testing contact tracing in subsequent waves? What did the experts you spoke with have to say about that? One of the experts, I, I believe it was Carr, she um, said, at least in our province, uh, Alberta has a very, very high rate of testing. And the recent launch of um, the app from the Alberta government to assist with tracing uh, is kind of going to be key through this relaunch. So uh, essentially, it's up to us to stay away, but the testing is going to be key in identifying, you know, if let's say somebody who's asymptomatic goes into a coffee shop and then that person, if they do end up fi finding out that they have it, they can, you know, trace it back or if they infect someone there and then that person gets it, then the government can use this app um, that they launched or just kind of the traditional, you know, tracing by questioning who was there. Um, and essentially what I heard from Carr was that we have to be careful, but it, the government will um, also have kind of a cushion of the testing to trace if there are new outbreaks happening once um, people start going back out. One thing that I, I, I really found interesting um, was, uh, so Cynthia Carr, the um, epidemiologist from uh, Manitoba, she told me that this virus is kind of the perfect virus, not perfect virus, but as far as a virus that can survive and infect people, um, it, it has a very good strategy. So she said that because of its long incubation period, as we know that if you need to isolate, you're expected to do it for 14 days because even 14 days after you're exposed, you can show symptoms. And so she said that because of that incubation period, as well as the asymptomatic cases, those two factors are what make this such a kind of, um, virus that has made itself very very uh, set up to spread through societies. As cities and provinces begin reopening certain areas of their economies, there are a lot of questions being asked about the reopening of civilization, whether it's too early to come out of sheltering in place and what that could do to help the spread of the novel coronavirus. 6.30 Cheds' Ryan Jesperson asked Edmonton virologist Dr. Michael Houghton for his thoughts about loosening public health guidelines. When you're looking at the, what's happening in Wuhan, China right now, they're, they're showing that, that so-called second wave. What, what's happening there as, as far as what we know at this point? What prompts that? What causes that? Was it inevitable? Well, I think when you have a highly contagious virus like this one, um, it's going to happen if you don't eradicate the, the viral transmission in the first wave. It, it's almost inevitable. Um, ideally, you want to undergo the first wave to the point where there are no new cases 
And then uh, when you return to work, uh, there's a good chance there won't be a second wave. But with the uh, need to strengthen the economy and get back to work, most countries are trying to go back, even though there are new cases appearing on a daily basis. Cynthia Carr is an epidemiologist and founder of Epi Research in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Cynthia, what kind of metrics should provinces be watching as they reopen new parts of the economy? So the most important aspects are that there is a clear strategy and a clear monitoring system in place for every phase. And that's why we are seeing that there are phases so that our different um, uh aspects can be measured. So whether it's opening up, you know, key uh, access to diagnostics and screening, because we know uh, that even um, outside of this epidemic, disease doesn't stop. Early intervention saves lives. So we've got to identify where the most um, immediate need is for opening. And also with that, what is our capacity to track if there were an outbreak or a cluster of cases, because we know that once there's a cluster that becomes an outbreak, that leads to the epidemic or can. So we need to make sure that with a stage and approach, every area that will be open, there is the capacity to track if there are new cases coming about that can be related back. So again, that speaks to again, we have to have that testing capacity and we have to have the capacity to quickly analyze the data and report it back to the individual because the the biggest agent in preventing the spread right now is understanding if you are infected and taking um, the measures to prevent that spread. So none of that goes away. In fact, it has to be enhanced with reopening. What do you think about some of the province's approaches, often using multiple stages? You look at the provinces, some have approaches that don't have dates yet uh, into third and fourth phases, and some have uh, plans for sort of a two-week or a one-month differential between the phases. And that is an example of a scientifically thought-through approach because let's think back to the incubation period of this virus. That's what's making it so tricky and hard to manage is it can be, you know, 10 to 14 days between infection and um, any symptoms of the virus, and many people don't have any. So what you want to see if you actually have a true uh, risk and increase in cases, or if you're still on track, is at minimum one incubation period, but preferably two. So a minimum of 14 days or 28 days. And of course, that incubation period roles. You know, day one, day two is now day 15, etc. But what I'm saying is that's not just a random um, reason for a two-week or a one-month. It would relate back to what do we know about the potential incubation period so that we know, okay, within 14 days, 15 days, if we're not seeing an escalation of cases, we might be safer to start contemplating the next phase. Should governments stick with dates they set in these staged reopenings? Uncertainty leads to a lot of stress and anxiety. And if I say to you, on May 19th, you're going to be able to go to your chiropractor and you, you're you really excited about that date, but then I've 
we've got more data, we're seeing some risk that we're not comfortable with, and we need to push that date back, that then can lead to, well, is the government lying or is the government unclear, as opposed to actually the government is learning and reacting. And so in some ways, it's better not to put a hard and fast date with the following phases, because we just don't know yet what's going to happen. So there's consistency across the provinces in terms of We just talked about opening key aspects of the health system. It has to happen. People need diagnostic testing. They need um, screening. They need pain control. All of those important um, aspects of health and well-being uh, need to be opened in a safe and measured way. We're seeing opening of public and outdoor spaces because people need to get out. They need to exercise. Uh, So those are also areas where science is telling us there could be more safety uh, with being outdoors as opposed to opening um, areas where um, there might be more potential for spread. It's a little bit different uh, in Quebec where we're seeing um, the opening of daycares. Now, Quebec did keep about 6,000 daycare spots open since March. They had about six cases uh, identified in kids and about nine in workers. So we are seeing, as per the data, that children have a much lower Um, obvious infection rate, but because we don't have the resources, um, we haven't done random testing. We know, though, from countries like um, Iceland, where there was random testing, that 50% of the population that was positive didn't have any signs or symptoms. But on the kids' side, we're seeing that kids under 10 had a 7% positivity rate versus about 14% in people aged 10 and older. So, When we look at Quebec and we look at the kids and we look at the risk for sharing toys, for how do you keep them apart, um, we are also seeing now um, some linkage uh, in the UK, and I think we just heard in Quebec, some potential linkage to a rare, rare disease called Kawasaki disease. And is that linked to exposure to COVID-19? Now, Kawasaki is an illness that is quite obvious. If your child gets it, they'll they'll have a high fever, red eyes, peeling skin. The good thing about that is it's so obvious. The bad thing is it's obviously frightening, but it can be treated. But in rare cases, it can cause uh, an impact on the child's heart. So we need, again, to be really careful, stay on top of that data, um, because Quebec is taking that approach and has already seen some potential cases of this side um, bar illness. Could we see a second wave of the novel coronavirus sweeping through the provinces as a result of the reopenings? So again, we learn from history and we learn in real time. Um, Historically, uh, even with the influenza where there's a pretty standard flu season late fall into early spring, We have seen occasions where there have been a second wave. So an example of that is a virus that acted a little bit differently, which um, is H1N1. H1N1 actually started in the summer, not in the fall. And by January, we started to see kind of a reduction in cases and we kind of let it go a little bit off our radar in terms of, in hindsight, being as vigilant as we probably should have. And so what happened with H1N1 and why we need to be vigilant is that it came back in January. And the result of that was that um, we ended up with many more cases and, and infections 
spreading into more countries than we had seen. So for example, in June 2009, we had 74 countries with confirmed cases. January 2010, we started to scale back on our response because it seemed like it was settling down. But by July of 2010, so a year after we had 74 countries infected, we now had 200 territories and countries infected. And the spread escalated. So there is evidence in recent history uh, with a, a flu for which we even did have a vaccine uh, where there was a second wave and that second wave did cause more death. There's also lots of, um, of evidence, uh, even with respect to the coronavirus, that a virus can become endemic in a population. So epidemic means um, it's moved, as we said, from an outbreak to a disease that's spreading and it's it, it's quite serious. Endemic means it's common in the population. We don't have a vaccine for it, but for the most part, there's community spread, but we don't see catastrophic outcomes. So there's actually seven strains of the coronavirus. This is the seventh the other two that are deadly and serious were SARS that seemed to tire itself out um, in 2003-04 and MERS, which is still continuing in the Middle East. But some people might not know that there's four strains of the coronavirus routinely circulating in our population, and they cause about one in four of the common colds every year. The good thing is they don't tend to go into our lower respiratory system, which of course is where the complication and the danger is for pneumonia or other serious respiratory illness. So in a virus that already has a really good strategy like this, there's not really a reason for it to become more deadly. The virus wants to thrive. It wants to continue to spread. So a reason for a virus to kind of scale back is so that it could maybe be the fifth endemic or common virus in the population that might not be as deadly, um, but still has that high rate of um asymptomatic cases, it can keep spreading, uh, it can keep living uh, in different um, people and potentially continue to infect but not kill. It doesn't want to kill you because then it's also stopped itself from spreading. So that would be an example where it does happen um, with many illnesses where that virus does uh, continue throughout the population but sometimes it becomes less deadly. And hopefully with more knowledge and more information, uh, eventually with the development of vaccine, eventually with treatment, eventually hopefully with people understanding that, um, you know, I know long-term risk, I've been told that smoking's not good for me, but I'm also learning in real time that if I'm a smoker now and there's damage to my lungs or my immune system, I'm also at higher risk for communicable disease like this. So maybe we become healthier as a population, we become more resilient, potentially our immune system has learned a little bit. We don't know yet, but potentially our immune systems have learned a little bit so that even if we become in contact with the virus a second time, maybe there is some reactivity or ability to fight against that virus. But those are things that we will learn. Uh, we need to make sure that we go uh, progressively and slowly and gradually on any reopening, keeping at top of mind uh, the importance of keeping people safe and healthy. I understand the economic pressures we're all under and I understand how much people do want to go outside.
but we need to do it in ways that we are sure are going to keep people safe. Because the last thing people want is a few weeks from now being told, okay, we loosened the rules and now COVID's spreading again and you're all going to have to go inside for the rest of the summer. People don't want to do that. That's why being very careful step by step is going to be so important. Allison, what was the consensus from the four experts you spoke with about the likelihood of a second wave of COVID-19? I would say the consensus was that all four of them predicted it is likely that there will be a second wave. Um, and uh, I will say like for, I, I spoke to um, Dr. Feist uh, spe- specifically about kind of whether these outbreaks are going to be, you know, where there already are larger outbreaks such as uh, in the Calgary zone and the South zone of Alberta, where um, we've seen quite a few of the um, cases in provincially. And she essentially said that um, she believes the likelihood of uh, the second wave would be following the same pattern as we're seeing right now. So um, these areas that kind of have larger outbreaks right now have to be especially careful. Uh, But it's just all four of them essentially said that they think the reopening will lead to um, whether or not it can actually be called a second wave, but uh, certainly a rise in cases was the the consensus among all four um, experts that we spoke to. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you can, please give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay happy. We'll see you soon.